originally coming on board just as a student intern and intern, being a young architect, I was always amazed at how much Trey would allow. There was just such this support from top to bottom to push the limits of architecture, no matter what the project was, no matter how big, how small, whatever it was, it was to just question and push the limits. And it didn't really matter where the sketch or the concept or the idea came from or who it came from. It wasn't about hierarchy. It was just more about what is the best approach, the best idea, and let's bring that forward. And so I always just, from the early years, just was always just amazed at how much I was open to, it's not just the sketch, here it is, hand off and go execute. It truly is more about finding that, that right idea and not matter where it comes from. Welcome to Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Now, I'm going to go through, give a little bit of background on our guest. Very excited to be joined by Brad McWhorter and Margaret Jankowski of Trahan Architects. Brad is a partner at Trahan. He's also a New Orleans native and left the Crescent City to study architecture at LSU in Baton Rouge. Graduated in 2002 and joined Trey Hand as an intern, which is pretty fascinating. Quite the trajectory. Margaret is a part of ISLA, is the director of urban design at Trey Hand, and also aims to improve cities through her, the public realm and open space. A big fascination there. She has a background in art, landscape architecture, urban design, in theory, and has a deep love for cities. So I'm very excited to be joined by both. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, George. Glad to be here. Thank you. I also want to give a special shout out to Julia Gamolina at Trahan and Madam Architect, uh, the Madam Architect community for helping organize this conversation. And I'm also joined by a special co-host, Eileen Mendoza from the Monograph team, who also happens to have a background in landscape architecture, having graduated from the GSD at a lot of really great firms along the way, like MBBA. To start off with, I love to just get to know a little bit more about you. I give a little bit of a brief synopsis, but would love to know, maybe you started with Margaret. What were the highlights of your career? Like, how did you get to where you are today? Sure, yeah. Thanks for having us here. It's just fun to be here and to chat and just kind of take the time to, to hear more from Brad too. But so, yeah, I, like you said, my background is in architecture and landscape architecture and urban design. And it was been a little bit of like a sequential journey to get where I am now. I mean, I started with my undergraduate degree in architecture and even before that was really interested in the built environment, having grown up in rural Colorado, but then spending a lot of time in cities like New York City and Philadelphia, where we had family and, and going back there for the summers and that kind of juxtaposition between a highly urban environment and a very rural environment, I think informs a lot of my interests like now and, and what I do. And, and as I look back, I can kind of see some of the ways that that has played a role in every step along the way. But I was very interested in going to school for architecture, although I knew I didn't want to do Bachelor of Architecture. I felt like I wanted to have some room to change my mind and, and really pursue what I know now as a liberal arts education. When I was in high school, I didn't know what that was or anything. But so, yeah, that's my kind of basis and introduction is to a very theoretical approach to architecture in the built environment, not focusing on buildings at all. And during that, I got introduced to landscape architecture, which I remember thinking like, we're going to spend a whole semester on landscape architecture. Like, what are we even going to do? You just put some bushes around the building and then you're done, right? So mm -hmm. of course, 
lot more than that. And I'm really glad that I got introduced to it. And it was in a, an urban context that I first really learned about landscape architecture. So ended up going back to school for that specifically. And since then have just really enjoyed working on the these like complex public projects. I've been at a couple of different firms. I've done smaller residential work, really focusing on plants, which has was incredible and really formed the basis of my love for plants and respect for them. But since then and since grad school, I've really worked on public open space, like the Seattle waterfront, the Miami Underline, but also other aspects of design as well, not just through a project, but through books. I helped work on the Highline book while I was at James Corner Field Operations, which was really an incredible way to think about architecture and the built environment from like a communications perspective, I guess, and and from the perspective of people who know nothing about it and are just reading about it in a book. And then more recently in from the business development side. So taking a look behind the scenes at how to actually get work and communicate what do we do in, in a firm. So now that I'm at Trahan, focusing back more on the project side and looking at what the urban impact is of our projects and how do they go beyond the building envelope and what's going on with their connection to the community, connection to the environment, everything kind of outside of the physical building. Thanks for that. Expect me to follow that, Margaret? I mean, it's so much more boring. You know, started as a student intern and 19 years later, here I am. I mean, that's, you know, that. but uh, no, it's been an amazing, amazing journey. Just as you mentioned, George, starting as a student intern at LSU with the firm, building models of, of churches at the time and um, graduated and ended up sticking on at the time. We were probably about 15 people. Two of, the, two of our greatest projects were being built at the time, actually, the Holy Rosary Catholic Church. Church and LSU Academic Center for Student Athletes were under construction when I came on board and obviously some of our two of our best projects as a firm. And we had just completed the stadium expansion sports at LSU uh, Tiger Stadium and we're just starting a new expansion of the stadium, the West Side. And uh, just being a huge sports fan uh, coming out of school, just the, the opportunity to to work on a stadium right off the bat. And of course, my alma mater was just an amazing uh, opportunity. And, and uh, you know, we, we went several years where we were building actually quite a few sports projects in the midst. And we sort of came out of that as a firm and can kind of return back to more of a design practice, uh, high-end design. And we, I was um, lucky enough to work on projects like the Louisiana State Museum and Sports Hall of Fame in Natchitoches and moving through the Owensboro Convention Center. And somewhere in the middle of that, we rebuilt the Superdome after Katrina, which was just one of the most amazing experiences I could ever have imagined. A couple of years out of school and being from New Orleans originally, growing up, literally spending every Sunday in the Superdome with my family and with Saints uh, games and everything. And then to be able to be a, an integral part of, of the team that, that rebuilt the, the building after Katrina is such an iconic project for the city and the state. And so just so lucky there. And then just continuing on to where we're working on a, the master plan, a $450 million master plan implementation of the Superdome right now. And so it's been quite a, quite a journey and lots of scales of projects and just an amazing opportunity that Trey gives us here. And it's been good or bad. That's all I know. So when we bring people like Margaret on board, it's, it's purposeful because we don't do everything right. We're not perfect. And learning and collaborating with different folks that have had different experiences is really important to grow the firm. And here we are today at pushing, I think, 30 people. And it's really exciting to see 
things come together for us. Thanks for sharing. I'm really fascinated to learn more a little bit about how like your own perceptions of the office in some sense of like when you each of you joined, like for Margaret coming from field operations to now to be the director here, like what what were your impressions of the office coming in? And like what were there any surprises or changes that happened as when you joined? And I'm curious for Brad too what the perception was like. Yeah, for me, switching jobs in the middle of a pandemic was like a funny, you know, asking myself, like, am I really doing this? Is like, it's just a very unusual situation to start at a firm with working from home and nobody's meeting each other. But it was one thing that did surprise me was how easy it felt, really. It's a very welcoming and it's a great environment, even digitally. (laughs) It's been great to get to know everybody. And you really, I think any worries about not being able to connect with people have just really not come to fruition. It's Mm. been very easy to hop into projects and to just come alongside people and work together. So that's been amazing. And I think the other thing that struck me about the office as I was first learning about it was, well, two things probably. One, the really beautiful attention to material detail and like Sometimes I think to say that something is of a sculptural quality, it can be not what you're actually looking for, but I mean this in the best way that just the forming of materials and the many different materials that the firm works with and the clear joy and celebration of those materials, I think is really comes through in the work, even in photographs. And that struck me when I first learned about the firm. But the other thing at Trahan is I think very unique is that the office has done so many different types of work. Like even Brad, you were saying you worked on chapels and ecclesiastical projects and also on the Superdome at NFL football stadium, which is like not something that many firms, I would guess, have worked at both those different scales and different typologies. And we've got museums and cultural institutions and all sorts of things. And I think that it's pretty cool how versatile the firm is. It's kind of a tricky thing to probably continue because, you know, you always have to be convincing people like, yeah, well, we haven't done this typology before, but we're going to do it right. We're going to like make it happen. And you can see how we've applied this process and thinking to other different projects, but getting these incredible results. So I think that definitely also struck me about the firm and, and just coming on board. It's, it's kind of liberating to have so many different types of projects. So I had a question as I'm listening to Brad's description of, you know, him starting at the company and like his time there, but also now ending on just like the very wide range of projects. And so I thought I would ask you, like in your role as director of urban design, like what does your day-to-day look like and what are your responsibilities? Um, in part, I have an idea what they might look like, but for anyone else who's listening, who's like not in the landscape architecture firm and might be unfamiliar with um, that position. Yeah, well, that's a great question. I think urban design is a little bit of a fluid term in a way, right? Like it can mean anything from, it just encompasses so many things that the focus can be more on landscape architecture or more on the planning side of things or more on the kind of building and forming of buildings. So you can focus on a lot of different things. And I think we're still trying to hone in on exactly what Trahan's approach to urban design will be. So part of what I'm doing is helping develop that and really what seems to be coming to the forefront is really thinking about context that's in a broad sense, really 
looking, they already did this before I came on board, obviously, but looking at not only the environmental context, of course, like the watersheds and the soils and all of these things, but also the cultural context and who came before and really kind of just refining what it is that's our approach and and what we're going to bring to the forefront as we start projects and how that will carry through. That's part of what I do day to day. And then Another part since I've joined is definitely pursuing new work and pursuing, it's different than being the director of business development. I think like it's very different when you're going to be the one working on the project. It's not that it like the level of seriousness is obviously still the same and the dedication to like putting out a good proposal, but there's something about knowing that you'll be continuing on the project, even after the proposal stage, that is really, I like that. And it makes it feel a little bit more, just more meaningful. So definitely pursuing new work. I think making sure to get the word out about Trahan and talking to people. I mean, since I'm new and the fact that we have now this urban design focus is now verbalized and an official thing we want to make sure people know about what it is. And just also, I think, continuing to get the word out about this New York office because the firm's roots are in New Orleans and that will never change. And, and that's part of what makes it a really incredible firm. But we also do have this New York studio and trying to work with continuing to let people know that we're here and, and what it is that's going to be our focus. And what does it mean for an office of our size to have two physical offices and how does that impact the types of projects we're pursuing and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, that's a lot of what the day-to-day has been so far. And then of course, some project work too. I was waiting for that sprinkle. Like, And on top of all of this. For Brad, since you've like going back to like when you joined about 15 people, there's been multiple eras probably in the firm as it grows, mm-hmm. right? We talk a lot about monograph as, as we're growing too, just like systems have to be continuously rethought as you scale up. So when you go from 15 to 30, what was working before has to just, it doesn't work just because of the nature of the complexity of communication. I'm curious, like going from, if you can walk us through maybe in your mind, what were the key sort of eras for the growth of the company? Because I'm also very curious to talk about the what it meant to go into New York and how early was that for the history of the company or what were the decisions that drove that to, to open up to New York? And then ultimately, even just thinking about entering a new market like urban design from your perspective. Yeah, I guess uh, the New York office came about just from a, a development side of thinking, being able to tap into the resources and the people that are, you know they're available in New York. I mean, Margaret already, she hit on it. We are a Louisiana firm, a New Orleans-based firm with a New York office, not vice versa. And we've always been counseled and coached on don't let that change that is that's culturally something that's extremely unique to us and you know the type of people that we're looking to bring on board and the type of hire and how we build the firm it's really meant and it's always been in my mind meant to be one firm not two different studios and that goes all the way from a philosophy of design but also the interconnectivity and the technology and how you do that i mean i can remember Back when we were just 15 people and from a technology standpoint, server standpoint, how much has changed over the 15, 20 years to where now we're cloud-based, completely seamless between the office. You can travel between the offices and now people working from home and you are plugged into Trahan Architects infrastructure. There's no New Orleans and there's no New York. It is truly a seamless integration of software and technology that took an unbelievable amount of time to get right. It actually took us probably three or four versions of setups 
to even get there because we couldn't find the right way of doing it at the time. And so we've got a, some great collaborators as it relates to IT now that, believe it or not, all the way down to the aesthetic of we, as you can see in the background there, we look like an Apple store to the people in our building in, in New Orleans, but we run everything off of bootcamp and windows based all of our software. But from an aesthetic standpoint, we went to the Mac side and we couldn't, everyone in IT told us, don't do it. You can't do it. No way, you know, no how. And frankly, we're too hard headed and too aesthetic driven to believe anybody. And when someone tells us no, makes us dig in a little harder. So <laughs> figure it out. So just all the way down to those types of details and making the, the symmetry between the offices be, be similar. But we did have lots of different growing pains up and down. The move from Baton Rouge to New Orleans was probably one of the bigger moves than actually the new, opening the New York office. You know, we tell the story where we were working on a convention center in, in Kentucky and we would have meetings with stakeholders and the mayor and they would, we would be traveling there and the mayor would always introduce us and say, this is our architect from New Orleans, Louisiana. At the time we were in Baton Rouge and he would introduce us to people and, you know, good to meet you. Nice to meet you. And they would leave. And they were actually from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got it. Next person comes up. Hey, this is our architect, Trahan Architects from uh, New Orleans, Louisiana. So, okay, we got it. We, we get it. It's, so it's just one of those things where having that identity and, of course, being from here for me, it was such an easy move for me with my family is all here and everything. But it was done to be more of an international focused firm and have that connectivity and to be able to have a firm in such unique cities like New Orleans and New York. It's just something that we really have tried to capitalize on and, and make us sort of unique in that way. And yeah, to your point, Brad, about being one firm, I think that really plays out in the people who are working on different projects. And I'm in the New York office. I'm here in my apartment in Brooklyn, but I'm working on projects in New Orleans, in New York, in pretty much anywhere. And it's a very, even before COVID, the office was very much like people were working on projects wherever they were. And it wasn't really necessarily about, it's not territorial. Like this is the New York office and we get the projects up here. And if you're in New Orleans, you work on the New Orleans projects. So it's cool to see it set up like that already. And that helps with feeling like I'm able to know my colleagues, regardless of what office they're technically in, because we're working on things together. And it is, even though everything right now is still digital or virtual in the New York office, it feels like it is one office. That sounds great. Yeah. What are some of the intentional decisions that you've made on your process and some of the tools um, that you've adopted in software that have allowed you to collaborate in this pretty seamless method being thousands of miles away from each other? It's interesting. I mean, even before the pandemic, we were already on multiple design charrette go-to meetings during the week, just sharing the projects between the offices because we were always just sharing the work. It wasn't as though we had the New York and the New Orleans projects from an infrastructure setup. And we even had a few architects working remotely already from home before the pandemic. So we already had a blueprint on how to quickly shift everybody to the work from home environment. Sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. We got a little lucky in that sense, but the process was already sort of there in terms of the virtual meetings. And I think what became different though was actually folding the clients into that process virtually because it, it would always before obviously be face-to-face -face with the clients and switching over to the, the, the virtual world with clients was one of the unique things that we did have to learn. But technology-wise and the way that our virtual meetings and, and such were, were scheduled and set up, 
we were already doing most of the things when the pandemic occurred, and that really helped us transition through that and get us through that. And there's a few things, too, that have happened even since, well, there's the office meeting that we have once a week with the whole office, which I think really helps it feel like one office. And it's a full open meeting where we report on the projects. This is like not an unusual thing, but I know as firms grow, that can get too clunky to do. And that's maybe one of the benefits of being still 30-ish people that we can have an hour-long meeting every week all together. And you just... Even if not everybody's talking, but you just know that it's the whole office there on the call, which I think helps a lot. And then we recently put a lot of work into consolidating our kind of chat functions onto Teams, Microsoft Teams, which we're all on it now. And I think like the question of, is it Slack or is it Teams? Or there's so many things and everybody's gotten really into them during the pandemic Mm -hmm. because we've had to. But knowing that you can see kind of all these conversations happening sort of similar to how it might be if you were like in an office walking past somebody and hearing things, but digitally instead. Yeah, we even just our own workflows too, because Monograph is a fully remote operation. Even internationally, we have people on our team that are in Europe um, as well. And one of the ways that we try to deal with asynchronous communication is just like using tools like Loom or we can record, you know, something that we're seeing on a screen, right? And we just want to walk someone through it and let them view the video in their own time by sending just a simple link that they can then view. We're always rethinking it. I'm curious for, you know, going back, maybe tying the knot about the Apple, like the Apple devices in Brad's background to maybe Margaret's involvement with the company. I'm curious, how is the Apple laptop What's like the analogy of that kind of detail in urban design? Like, I'm very curious of like, how does the firm make that jump? Or, I mean, obviously there's a whole different sets of rules when you're talking about urban design and the aesthetics piece doesn't necessarily come into it. But I'm just curious if there was a translation of quality of that kind of that symmetry, what does that end up, whether through values or like rubrics that your team uses? Yeah, I'm curious, what is the level of quality, I guess, or the bar for? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think something that I think about a lot is that research is design. Like your design process starts from the minute you start researching what the project is. And so how we structure our research, the care that we put into it is the same kind of care and attention that is put into choosing the kind of computer equipment that aligns with our values. So when I'm looking at a potential project and I want to understand what it is, I always need to ask myself like, okay, Who was here before it was a project? Who was here before colonization and settlement? What is the land use and what is the ecology of the place? What are kind of some of the stories about this place? Even ones that maybe, especially ones that aren't the main story that have been told through dominant culture, but that are latent underneath. How can we find out who this place is meaningful to? Starting that research narrative with those questions, I think is really important. And that is a way that just from the very first time that we interact with the project as a firm, we can start to not put our imprint, but approach it from the way that is meaningful and consistent with our firm. I think it's how we result. It results in such unique solutions as well. And when you look at our body of work, you don't see necessarily that lineage. And it's because we truly try to pull from the locale and the region and the site specific to create to recreate the place and the space. And it's also what helps us with the conversations, I think, with the clients to bring them along in that journey so that they feel like they're part of that solution because it's rooted in all those elements that Margaret speaks to. 
Yeah. And by the time you get to the point where you're drawing things out, whether it's in a plan or you're modeling it in 3D, you've established a basis for why you're doing that. And it doesn't mean that there's only one solution. Obviously, there's always going to be continual iteration and options, but it grounds your design in that philosophy and gives it a reasoning instead of just like plopping something. It can sometimes feel if you don't know what the background is of the project and the evolution of it, that it was just someone crumpled up some paper and threw it on the ground or whatever the kind of stereotypical thing is that our approach is very different than that, obviously, and really rooted in the research and and in thinking about the context of the things. I don't quite have a question. I have a comment, but I think that's something that's common with like landscape architects that we fall in love. And one of my favorite terms, I was just jogging my memory now is like studying the palimpsest, right? Mm-hmm. Which is like all those layers of layers of like, not just like 10 years before you, but like civilizations before you and like how that yeah. affects your project. And I love that. I think there's just so much sensitivity. Sometimes it gets lost by the time that the project is like out in the world, but it is such a beautiful process when you're designing and when you're collaborating with your client, explaining it to them um, with others. Yeah. And to that point too, it informs like how we build our teams and how, like what matters to you as a firm is going to influence who you bring onto your team as collaborators. So we have a lot of really long standing collaborators in specific disciplines with engineers, theater consultants, lighting designers, landscape architects, And we're continuing to find new partnerships as well with people whose focus is on race and place, like really understanding that this needs to be a component of our work. Many different types of collaborators, I think, are that's to me, like being able to work with people who have expertise in different areas is really exciting and makes the project so much richer and more grounded too, in more than just one way. Just kind of zooming in a little bit on on those collaborators, because it seemed like they're almost extensions of the firm in some way. They're helping you to augment some capacities that the firm might not have or in-house. I'm curious, what are there long-term external consultants that Trian Architects has relied on to help extend some of the capabilities of the office? And what does that look like? What does collaboration look like in those terms? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we've really tried to blur the lines between some of those disciplines, architecture and landscape architecture on many of our projects, specifically of late. So, you know, some of the longest, you know, standing relationships we've had with those collaborators would be like a Reed Hildebrand or someone of that nature who we've just had such an amazing, you know, run with in terms of projects. And, and, and you can see a lot of those collaborations through the projects on our portfolio just because we're so respectful for the other disciplines and allow that to be as an equal to the architecture, it's just so critical. Otherwise, it just dominates and it's an afterthought and doesn't, they don't work together in that sense. So there's obviously, there's the obvious in a design collaborations, but also from a construction standpoint, finding some unique collaborators, trade partners, some call them subcontractors that are willing to go out there a little bit and explore processes of making the building. And we're coming up with some pretty unique and out-of-the-box solutions, and we need open-mindedness from the construction world to execute those types of ideas. So when we throw out an idea of the Castone of the Sports Hall of Fame or some of the exterior pleated copper skin or the steamed white oak of Alliance Theater, where you can't just go to a subcontractor that's done that before and say, we want this. 
you got to find somebody that wants to collaborate with you and say, how do we actually make this? And just again, it goes back to someone going to, when you approach them, are they going to be interested or is it going to be a a straight up? No, and we're not, we're going to move on. And so we're looking for across the board collaborators that will be open-minded to explore those processes with us. For you both, what has been, is there a handoff inherent to some client coming in from the, on the urban design side to the architecture side, or is it more currently, there isn't a very clear handoff. It's more of like, it's part of a proposal potentially. And the hope is that through a great client relationship, that selection happens. How does that, the both worlds of urban design and architecture in practice play out for the firm? I think part of that will be determined in the next couple of years as we develop the urban design practice and really hone what projects are the most the best fit for Trahan from an urban design perspective. But I know so far of the ones that we've pursued and the ones that we're working on, some of them have, for example, if it's a master plan, some of them have specific buildings that they know they're going to want. And that is part of the master plan is designing and defining this building along with the rest of the systems within the the campus or whatever it is. Some of them, though, don't necessarily have a building planned, yet there's something there that is still of interest to the firm, whether it's the organization's mission and their program or the role they're playing in the community or just a really compelling site. So I think one of the things that is unique about Trahan is, and this goes to what Brad was saying about the firm's respect for the expertise of our collaborators, is that a building is not always the solution, which is something that I felt was very refreshing when I first heard Trey talk about that. Yeah, sometimes it's going to be more of a landscape solution or the building, the structure may be more of a pavilion, but this will still get the same kind of care and attention as it would get if it were a full performance center. So yeah, as far as the, I don't know if I really envision like a lot of handovers because even from the very beginning we'll be working together me and architects in the firm and other designers to come up with the kind of overarching design and concept in hand in hand I guess with that same idea are there thinking like one scale forward like with your clients as you get new clients they're signed on what's the process for which you like introduce them into your firm do you have steps that you always repeat specific meetings or milestones or things like that? I think it's developed and changed over the years, whereas previously or long ago, because we were thinking so out of the box, we might have been a little bit more reserved in how much of that process we showed the client right up front, because in an iterative process, we're not always convinced the solution is there yet. And so when you're not convinced, it's hard to share that sometimes. And what we would find, I think, is that by the time we were convinced, we were maybe too far along and it was too much architecture already to where you actually revealed it. It was a little bit maybe sometimes shocking what the solution might be because they weren't quite sure how we got there or how they got there. And so one of the things that we've tried to do is start a little bit earlier with bringing them along on our process and our research before it becomes architecture or landscape architecture, urban design, we fold them into the process, the early process, and let them become a part of that exploration of what is the concept and what is right for their site and their project. And by doing that, it starts to make sense, even though it's not architecture yet, if that somehow that makes sense. And so when they start to see concepts form out of that, they understand why that's being considered. And so 
it helps, I think, with them understanding why we're going where we're going. It doesn't always work, but it's certainly kind of letting them see how the we like to see how the sausage is being made, Southern thing, I guess, but to show them that and maybe in some way that helps them understand the end result and they feel more of a part of that process because of that. Before we go into Q&A from the audience, I just added that in the chat. So feel free to send us some questions in the Q&A button. I wanted to switch a little bit to culture. It's underlying here. There's like an intention, a lot of intention to how Trahan Architects has operated over the years. It, it seems like you know, every decision seems to be very deliberate. So I'm very curious, what were the sort of values or influences that founder Trey Trahan has basically helped us to lay the foundation for the company? And, and Brad, maybe you can speak to this. I'm curious also Margaret's perception of it too, coming into the firm. It's like what that's been like. Yeah, I think just originally coming on board just as a student intern and intern, being a young architect, I was always amazed at how much a tray would allow. There was just such this support from top to bottom to push the limits of architecture, no matter what the project was, no matter how big, how small, whatever it was, it was to just question and push the limits. And it didn't really matter where the sketch or the concept or the idea came from or who it came from. It wasn't about hierarchy. It was just more about what is the best approach, the best idea, and let's bring that forward. And so I always just from the early years just was always just amazed at how much was open to it's not just the sketch. Here it is, hand off and go execute. It truly is more about finding that, that right idea and not matter where it comes from. Yeah. And something that struck me, obviously, I haven't been a part of these conversations since the beginning. Brad has a much richer idea of how it has evolved. But coming in in the last six months, we have a brand voice document that the firm invested time and energy in creating. And this is not just an aesthetic document with typefaces and colors and stuff, but it includes our ethos as a firm. And this is part of our proposals and is being worked into our website and is really starting to infiltrate all of our, the way that we are approaching our projects and stuff. And this includes concepts about kindness and dignity and respect and beauty for the land and for the environment and for people, the users of our projects, the clients, and for ourselves as well. So I think that's an incredible basis for an office culture to continue to evolve and is a real call to us as a firm to, okay, we have this ethos. What does that mean for the firm? How do we incorporate that into our office culture? How do we actually, with intention, embed this in our projects and in our interactions with each other? So I think it's a really ambitious call to ourselves to create a firm as well as create our projects and be intentional as we grow. Because Architecture is not known for being a kind environment, but I think the real challenge is to figure out how to do that while maintaining an incredibly high level of design performance and innovation. Yeah, it's a big question, I think, as we grow. Yeah, I'm fascinated with what you just described as a brand document. Yeah, I think it's very easy to, from the outside in, it might be easy to maybe see that as a almost surface level, but really like the company is the words that it uses. It's very much the culture is derived by the actions as well. And being able to take that investment seriously, because I'm sure as an investment of time and resources from within the company, it's really making a statement in and of itself to do that. 
How does that, I'm curious as a document, that is it a recent document or is it a much, how long has that document around for? Recent. It's recent. It's been developed. It started with our website development several years ago. I worked with an amazing collaborator for office use only. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but yeah, uh, great, just great work, Anton yeah. and his team, just amazing collaborators. And they really, it took a lot of work. It was a very long process, but they really they got to the essence of it working with us. And from there, it extended into this brand, this branding document. It really just, it was forcing us to identify what that was and forcing us to commit to it. And now it's something that is being brought through so that we all understand how to talk about it and speak through it. And so it was always one of those things where, and I'm sure every firm goes through this, like there's all these things happening and nobody really ever assembles them. And so, you know, just the resource that Trey allowed us several years ago to start that process with the website and then bring it through to the brand identity is just something that is an amazing tool to help us convey that to our current staff, potential staff, potential clients, current clients just goes down the line. As a kind of a guideline. All right, sounds good. I think we'll try to answer some questions right now of the audience real quick. Let me see and scan. But as I do that, I think it's reflecting a bit what you're saying. The mission and values part that probably comes from the brand, right? Those words that you're using that come from the brand document. We've had several guests on the show before from engineering firms and whatnot that really when have seen such great impact when when it's really done with intention, as, as you're describing, because it helps in everything. It helps to help you make decisions when leadership is not around. It helps you in recruitment to understand like do these people, do the people that we're trying to hire embody that culture to some degree. It's great to hear because there are very few, I think, firms that actually do approach it this way. So yeah, that's a great testament to the intention of the company. I do have some questions here. One question is, how do you get clients excited about projects which are ethos driven and show them how that adds value Essentially, and this is like probably the, the question for most architecture firms is like, how do I get clients to like understand value? But I'm curious in the lens of Trahan, what does that look like? How have you been effective at that? I know one way that I think about that is from the very beginning when we're trying to pursue work, it's almost the opposite. Like we're not trying to convince them to do an ethos driven project, but we're trying to find clients who are looking for firms who have a strong ethos and who will help them achieve these goals that they already have. So we're looking for an alignment. And yeah, we're always on the lookout for amazing clients. And if we can express who we are and what our approach and our ethos is within a project clearly in the proposal stage, then I think we have a much better chance of finding the client that will that also wants that and that will be a good fit because some clients and architects are not compatible. Their ethoses are different. They have different priorities and you want to be able to find the ones that obviously have an incredible project, but who are looking for someone like you and you can both push each other, but in the same direction, hopefully. So for me, it starts kind of at the very beginning, being able to clearly say who we are and how we can come alongside them and, and what they'll get from us as a firm. So we have one more question in the Q&A, and then I'll ask the closing question. So basically, how does one that wants to collaborate with Trahan because they have some area expertise, what's the best way in which to form that relationship with Trahan? Does it work to reach out to Trahan and someone at Trahan that oversees those type of partnerships? What's that process look like? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're always open to looking for new collaborators and potential projects out there that we may not know about. And so for sure, if we're talking about engineers or other architects or landscape architects and different entities, we work all over the place and we're constantly looking to build teams and relationships in the different locales. And it's always great to to be sought out like that. And we're completely open-minded as it relates to that. In terms of what that looks like, you never really know until you work through the full process, the design and the construction and getting something built, how great of a relationship and a collaboration can it be. But man, we've really found some great ones over the years that really stuck together. And we continue to repeat that over the years. But it all came about maybe by being partnered up by a university and just blindly kind of, hey, we're moving. They've selected us, but they have their own consultants and here's, and you get assembled that way. But others have come to us and with potential projects and shown us who they are. And we're certainly open to that. Yeah. And we have, we have a director of strategy who does a lot of work with making partnerships with many different types of people, potential clients, potential collaborators, just friends of the firm, so many different partnerships. And so Julia Gamalina, who we mentioned earlier, like she's an incredible part of the firm. And of course, like anybody in the firm leadership and even within the firm, the way the firm's set up, if people have someone who would be just a fun partner, there's ways to set up a lunch and learn or introduce material to the office, send it around to the office, and that can start the conversation going. All right, we're going to switch completely from the world of business to more personal question, which is the question I always like to ask at the very end. And I like this is the one sort of surprise question, which is, what's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? And we could start off with Brad. The nicest thing anyone has ever done for me personally, or we get all sorts of answers. There's no no rules to this question. And they're just in your whole life. We've had very personal answers. It's yeah, I've almost cried in some answers. It's, it's right. no, whatever whatever comes to mind first. Well, I guess maybe the nicest thing someone's ever done. We used to have a, a guy that worked with us named Joe Dean. He was ex athletic director for LSU, and I came on board, and he was helping open doors for at universities to get projects and work, but he had connections. Like, I mean, he used to work for Converse. He told us, he used to tell a story about how he lost out on signing Michael Jordan to Nike because he was working for Converse at, you know, going to that level. But he had so many connections to get and just being a sports fan. I would always go to him if something were to happen. Well, in 2009, the Saints ended up going to the Super Bowl and there was a lottery to get tickets, season ticket holders. And we, my family, we lost the lottery. We didn't get there, but I really wanted to bring my dad to the Super Bowl. And I went in his office one day. I said, Joe, I said, I got to get in the Super Bowl. How can you help me? And and let me make some phone calls. And we, uh, I'll get you in there. Just get down to Miami. So we, you know, me and some friends and my dad, we drove down to Miami. Didn't have tickets. You know, didn't nothing there. And the night before the game, we <laughs> still don't have tickets. And I get a call from Joe. He says, all right, there's going to be a guy in a gold Hummer. We're on South Beach at this point in the hotel. That's like Miami. There's going to be a guy in a gold Hummer come up to the hotel and he's going to have some tickets for you. Just be on the lookout for him. Go outside. And sure enough, Joe Dean delivered some Super Bowl tickets for some random guy in a golden Hummer in Miami for my dad to go to the Super Bowl. Uh, yeah. Exactly. So I'll never forget that. That was amazing. 
That's awesome. Mine is not nearly as fascinating. I think if you asked me this question in a couple of years, it'd probably be different or even a couple of years earlier, but I have a toddler currently. And so really the nicest thing people do for me now, specifically my husband, is to just let me sleep. That's all. That checks out. I have a toddler too. And that's like my, it's my birthday this weekend. And so it's known that I'm allowed to sleep in on Saturday and on Sunday. It's a double, it's a double weekend. That sounds great. Yeah. Well, thank you both for those personal answers. Really appreciate it. We just like to, we're very much about being human, speaking about kind of values here at Monograph. I mean, it's a big piece of, being human is a big piece of it. So um, yeah, I really appreciate that. For everyone else, I'd like to thank you. I'm just going to give a quick little plug about Monograph itself and what Eileen and I work for Monograph. So if you, if you didn't guess. So uh, at Monograph, we're building the future of practice operations and back office management for small to mid-sized firms. Monograph is designed for architects by architects. I studied architecture, Eileen studied landscape architecture, our founders all studied architecture, and about half of our company has some experience with architecture. So we really deeply care about the solutions we're providing to the industry. So it's a great way to see a unifying vision of your firm in one easy and beautifully designed solution. It helps you understand where you are in any given project, what your schedules and budget look like. It connects everything from your timesheets so that you understand today, right now, where am I tracking on a given project, which a lot of other solutions can't provide that. So how to get started? Do we have a free trial for 10 days on monograph.io? Feel free to visit or reach out to any one of us in the live chat. Eileen and her team are always active on there or shoot me an email at george at monograph.io. Thank you both so much for joining us today. This is a really great conversation. Really uh, appreciate the insights and everything else. And for everyone joining, thank you so much for spending your uh, bit of your Friday with us. It's great. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Hey, thank you. It was a pleasure. Bye. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.